chapter 2. Who was the God of Jesus and his followers? Jesus taught no new doctrine of God. The God of whom Jesus speaks is the one God of Israel. Mark 12, 29. That's from Hans Hinrich Wendt in his teaching of Jesus. What then are the facts in the case we're examining? The Bible taken as a whole presents a strict numerically singular view of God. The Greek word for God in the singular form of this noun appears consistently in the New Testament as the designation of the Father of Jesus. This is pure Unitarianism. God is the Father as distinct from Jesus. If one takes the evidence of Scripture as a whole, there's not a single occasion on which the word God means the triune God. There are some 12,000 occurrences of this word God, as to say Yahweh, the personal name of God, occurs some 7,000 times, always with the singular verbs and pronouns. Elohim, God, some 2,300 times. Adonai, the Lord God, 449 times. And in the Greek New Testament, Otheos, about 1,317 times. The fact that no writer ever meant the triune God when he said God informs the unbiased reader that biblical writers were not Trinitarians. Writing the word God, the authors of the Bible never meant the Trinity. An interesting example is James White in his Forgotten Trinity book cites no examples from scripture of God meaning the triune God. Although he says that sometimes God means the triune God. A Unitarian understanding of God is reached by looking at the whole range of Scripture. It's a fact that the word three occurs in no biblical verse next to the word God, while singular verbs and pronouns designate God thousands upon thousands of times. Christians claim to be following the historical grammatical understanding of the sacred text. Words carry their normal meaning. It would seem reasonable to expect believers in God, when they find him constantly represented by singular personal pronouns, to understand that he is a singular person. This impression is confirmed, surely, by the presence of thousands of occurrences of the singular nouns for God. Is anyone prepared to contradict ordinary rules of communication and claim that the God who speaks in the Bible as I really means I three? When David addressed his God and said, You alone are God, Psalm 86.10, did he have in mind a triune God of three persons? Jews, for all their history, and as custodians of the sacred text, never mistook the meaning of the words I me, he, and him as designating the true God. Unfortunately, some evangelicals disregard the massive evidence of the Hebrew Bible and make this sort of claim. In the process of history, God has revealed himself as one God subsisting in three persons. God, as revealed in the Bible, is not a simple, undifferentiated subject, but his being is in three objectively distinguished subjects. That the being of God is complex in the sense of objectively distinguished subjects is a basic presupposition of many Old Testament passages. 
Psalm 110 verse 1, Jehovah saith to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. From the article on Trinity by Merrill C. Tenney in the Zondervan Pictorial Bible Dictionary. As we shall see, this statement, in addition to its disregard for the single person who speaks as God, contains a remarkable clangor. The word Lord, in the form of my Lord, at the beginning of the verse quoted from Psalm 110, never means the Lord God, but always a superior who is not God. This error of fact has been repeated in article after article, even in standard works. To prove the deity of the second member of the Trinity based on a title which never indicates deity is astonishing. To make our case for the Jewish creed of Jesus and the New Testament, certain defining statistics need to be kept always in mind. In the New Testament, the Greek word for God, Atheos, the God, is found no less than 1,317 times as a description of the Father of Jesus, as distinct from Jesus, who is his Son. Thus, God and Father are repeatedly linked in the mind of the reader. Moreover, that same God is called God and Father, or God the Father, God our Father. When mentioned next to Jesus, his unique Son, God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. While Jesus is never called the true God, or the only true God, or the Almighty, Pantocrator, the Father alone is given those descriptions. In addition to the mass of material just mentioned, which pictures him as one divine person, every form of language available attaches to the Father of Jesus the idea of complete singleness, supremacy, and exclusivity. There is none beside him. God the Father is said to be, in his own class, unique and unrivaled, a position which he guards with an appropriate divine jealousy. Of himself, the God of Israel states, I alone stretched forth the heavens and earth, no one was with me. Isaiah 44 verse 24. The God of Israel is mentioned as such 300 times in the Bible and in both Testaments. He is never said to be, quote, begotten, which means brought into existence. By direct contrast, the Son of God is said to be begotten, meaning, of course, that he had a beginning of existence and by definition cannot therefore be the supreme God. Jews, as custodians of the oracles of God, Romans 3 verse 2, for their entire history have never admitted belief in a God who is three persons. Jesus was a Jew, and on the evidence available to us, he certainly was not a Trinitarian. Jesus and the Identity of God. May I invite you to join me in an exploration of a massively important episode in the teaching life of Jesus. This occurred towards the end of his short, strenuous, itinerant ministry as a teacher and preacher of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's an event with the potential to affect dramatically your journey of faith, an event able to change radically the way we think about our Christian faith. The story I'm referring to is found in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28. Mark records here an encounter between Jesus 
and a Jewish theologian, a scribe. The gospel accounts of Jesus were written, of course, as tracts, so to speak, to commend the Christian faith to readers. We should read these documents as appeals to us to align ourselves with the Christian faith. We are obviously intended to pay close attention to this important interchange recorded by Mark. Jesus is here found in conversation with a perceptive member of the ecclesiastical guild. The exchange between Jesus and the Jewish theologian is profoundly important for our worship of God in spirit and truth. John 4.26 The story is in fact unique in the New Testament. Jesus, in this interchange, is seen uncharacteristically as being in perfect agreement with a Jewish religious expert. Here is how the New Living Translation captures the fascinating conversation between Jesus and that professional Bible teacher. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the discussion. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. There's no difference in sense between the various translations, the Lord our God is one Lord, the only Lord, and so on. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying that there's only one God and no other, or no one else beside him. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart, all my understanding and all my strength, and to love my neighbors as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing this man's understanding, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It is important to note that a question about the most important theological issue is nevertheless a highly practical question. A parallel passage in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 17, shows that the issue of defining who God is and loving him was related to the question of salvation itself. To find out who the true God is and to love him is inextricably bound up with the hope of salvation in the age to come, everlasting life. In Matthew 19:17, Jesus replied to an inquirer who wanted to know how to be saved. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is one alone who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus makes the same point to the scribe who asked him about the most important of the commandments. He connects the scribe's good theological understanding with his closeness to salvation in the kingdom. Jesus and the scribe first agree about there being one God and, quote, no one other besides him. Finding the scribe to be sound in his definition of God, Jesus then reassures him that he is, quote, not far from the kingdom of God. That is, he is close to being a candidate for salvation in the future kingdom as a follower of Christ.
An interesting comment from the New Testament background can be found in the words of Josephus, the Jewish historian, speaking of his nation's creed, the hero O Israel cited by Jesus. The only God in question is, of course, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Josephus asks, quote, What then are the precepts and prohibitions of our law? They are simple and familiar. The first which leads all of the commandments, concerns God. Josephus was referring, as we all know, to his nation's cardinal Unitarian creed. And so was Jesus in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. Our New Testament passage fits the contemporary background perfectly. It presents the Lord Jesus as firmly rooted in the Jewish belief that God is a single person. Christianity's founder, in laying down the Christian creed, is thoroughly Jewish. He defines God as one single Lord. Jesus' own God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrew Bible. The God of the first century Jewish theologian, our Israel's God, Jesus defines God precisely as one person and one Lord, but the Christian church does not. Comments which illuminate or confuse. Massively influential spokesmen like C.S. Lewis divert us from the real definition of Jesus when they say he must have been, quote, mad, bad, or God. That's from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. What Lewis does not offer us is the real definition that he was the Messiah, Son of God. And Lewis seems to forget that Jesus vigorously subscribed to the non-Trinitarian creed of his heritage in Israel. Logicians call this technique of Lewis false dilemma. We are pushed into choosing one of the options offered us. But what if the right option escapes Lewis and does not appear on his list of choices? Why does Lewis write also? We must remind ourselves that Christian theology does not believe God to be a person. It believes him to be such that in him a trinity of persons is consistent with a unity of deity. That's from C.S. Lewis's Christian Reflections. This sounds extraordinarily unlike the theology of Jesus. It flatly contradicts the findings of the writer on the names of God in a leading Bible dictionary who writes, there is only one supreme and true God and he is a person. That's from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary. H. H. Hamilton, D.D., writing in 1912, felt the force of the episode in Mark 12, 28-34, and how beautifully it rooted Jesus in his own environment. He started by referring to the creedal statement quoted by Jesus from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This passage, as it stands in the Old Testament, expresses the very essence of the Jewish claim to a monopoly of religious privilege. Yahweh is one. There is no God but he. Therefore, all other objects of worship must be shunned. Hamilton notes that it is inconceivable that Jesus did not intend the word Lord to be taken in the exclusive sense in which it is used in the Old Testament. Jesus could not have altered its sense. Quote, the scribe who raised the question must have understood Jesus to refer 
to the national God of Israel alone. Thus, both to the scribe and to Jesus, quote, it must have sounded like a restatement of the ancient claim of the Jews, that no other worship but that which Israel offered was in reality the worship of the living God. The scribe's attitude is fully exposed when he immediately restates what he has heard Jesus say. Quote, you are right, Master. You have well said that he is one and there is none other but he. And to love him is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. H.F. Hamilton reaches the only possible conclusion. It seems impossible to doubt that those who witnessed the scene understood Jesus to mean precisely the same thing as the scribe. For it is recorded that when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's from the people of God, an inquiry into Christian origins. Jesus offered here a resounding statement of the unitary monotheism required of people at all times for a right relationship with God. Jesus put his stamp of approval upon the Hebrew Bible's definition of God as a single person. But is this creed of Jesus clear in our churches? I've often suggested to students studying to be in ministry that they read themselves into the biblical text. Place yourself in the shoes of that inquiring Bible expert who had obviously some acquaintance with Jesus and was anxious to put him to the test, not necessarily in a hostile way. This was not a trick question designed to trap Jesus. I suspect the scribe was duly impressed by the Rabbi Jesus' teaching ability. Jesus strongly encouraged his followers to recognize him as both Rabbi and Lord. You call me Rabbi and Lord and you do well. John 13, verse 3. Place yourselves in the shoes of that inquiring Bible expert who had obviously some acquaintance with Jesus and was anxious to put him to the test, not necessarily in a hostile way. This was not a trick question designed to trap Jesus. I suspect the scribe was duly impressed by the Rabbi Jesus' teaching ability. He had probably decided to check him out further. He wanted to know Jesus' priorities and agenda. How sound was his theology? So he poses this test question, what command from the God of Israel is the most important of all? Obeying and following Jesus. The answer Jesus gives to this question is highly significant for Christians at all times. Salvation in the New Testament is by grace. But grace does not allow us to disregard the commands and teachings of Jesus. Quote, salvation is given to those who obey Jesus. Hebrews 5, 9, Acts 5, verse 32. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, verse 21. He who obeys the Son has life, he who refuses obedience will not see life. John 3.36 He who hears my words and does them is like a man building his house on a rock. Matthew 7.24 Others who disregard Jesus' words are building their spiritual house on sand. He who rejects me by rejecting my words, 
will be judged by those words. See John 12, 48. He who is ashamed of me and my words, of him I will be ashamed when I come back. See Mark 8, 38. He who departs from the, quote, health-giving words, namely those of our Lord Jesus Christ, is ignorant and proud. See 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. And of course, the well-loved and often quoted sayings of Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15 and 15, verse 10. And its counterpart, which makes the same plea for adherence to what Jesus taught. Quote, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet refuse to do what I say? Luke 6, verse 46. The urgency of paying the closest attention to what Jesus taught comes to us clearly on every page of the Gospel accounts and in the rest of the New Testament. Salvation was first announced by the Lord Jesus and is granted to those who obey Jesus. Hebrews 2 verse 3 and Hebrews 5 verse 9. And, quote, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him, Acts 5.32. In defining the creed, Jesus spoke of the most important of all commandments. There's an issue of obedience here. There's also the compelling voice of the Father from heaven who exhorts us to listen to his unique Son. This is my Son. Listen to him. Luke 9.35 In the same vein, Peter urges the crowd to pay rapt attention to the final prophet. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every person who does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Acts 3.22, referring to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. What then do we learn as we hang on every word of the rabbi Saviour, recalling his memorable statement that we do well to call him Rabbi and Lord? John 13.13. 13. What do we hear as we listen to Jesus urging us to hear, O Israel? If we are listening carefully to Jesus in conversation with the Jewish scholar, Mark 12, verses 28 to 34 above, one crucial fact stands out. Jesus' definition of who God is harmonizes precisely with that of the Jewish scribe. The scribe is in complete agreement with Jesus about the first principle of all sound worship of God. Both the Jewish theologian and Jesus, the ultimate Jew and theologian, as well as the Christian Saviour, confirm the classic words of sacred scripture. The first command or imperative Jesus recited and repeated was, Listen, Israel. This is a direct command of the Lord Jesus. Then he continued with the cardinal proposition of all biblical theology, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus reckons this command, listen carefully to the proposition that God is one Lord, as the key to all sound thinking and action. It's the pinnacle of all true religion to give our full attention to a statement defining who the God is 
whom we are to worship and love, who the God is, who is to be loved with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. The second command to love our neighbors goes with the first, of course. May I startle you by putting a very simple fact before you. The creed announced by Jesus is the creed of Israel, of the Hebrew Bible, the creed of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew, and he and the Jewish scribe had no disagreement at all about who the God of the Bible is. Can one possibly argue otherwise? The story is plain and clear, essentially simple, and delightfully free of the tangled and abstruse definitions of God in which later post-biblical theology became embroiled. The Jewish Creed of Jesus. Each morning and evening, every Jewish man had to recite Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, and chapter 11, verses 13 to 21, and Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. This was the daily confession of faith. Jesus made no innovations here. He answers the question by quoting the texts which they had in common and which both believed to be sacred and ultimately authoritative. In defining the true God, Jesus has nothing to say which is different from what Israel had known from the law throughout her history. All historians and all Jews know that their God is a single person. There's no ambiguity about Jesus' response to the inquirer, none at all about how many God is. Jesus knows of no other God than the one revealed in the Creed of Israel. This is the God of his own Jewish heritage, the God who had appointed him as Messiah. This same God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the Hebrew Bible. He's defined as, quote, one Lord in Mark 12, 29. We are urged by Jesus to listen as he, Jesus, provides us with the only right definition of God. If Jesus is to be our guide, his utterance here about the basis of true worship and the one true God is of paramount importance to us as believers. Jesus is the one of whom God, his Father, had said, quote, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. Mark 9, verse 7. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Mark 12, 29. Is not the God of the Jews, the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. See Romans 3, verse 29. But is the church really listening? There's no need for an army of theologians to help us discern the meaning of Jesus' statement about who God is. The language is simple and precise. A plain proposition, a logical unit of intelligible communication. None of us has the slightest difficulty with statements of this kind. We all know what the number one means, and no one could possibly misunderstand the singular noun Lord. Jews, for the whole of their history, had no problem with the cardinal tenet of the national faith. God was a single, undivided, divine person, designated in their holy writings by thousands of singular personal pronouns 
and designating himself as the one single Lord of the universe, the one divine person who alone is God. This one God used every device known to language to convey the concept that he and no one else is God and there is no other God. Singular personal pronouns define a single person. Christians claim to be rooted in the grammatical method where the standard laws of grammar are decisive. These statements are beyond any doubt as clear as language can make them. Quotation, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is none other besides him. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. You'll find that in Deuteronomy 4 verses 35 and 39. So that you may understand that I am he, before me there was no God formed, and there will be no other after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there's no Saviour beside me. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. That's in Isaiah 43, verses 10 to 12. I am the Lord, and there's no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, and spreading out the earth all alone. Isaiah 44 verse 24 Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Saviour. Isaiah 45 verse 15 Bathe your minds in these Bible words and see if the one speaking is really three persons. Is the God speaking here as a person, or is he as contemporary Trinitarians claim, a what? A substance existing in three persons. Imagine the chaos which the introduction of a triune God would bring to these matchless texts. Singular personal pronouns, and the Hebrew language uses verbs in the singular to speak of the one God, Yahweh. Pronouns of all forms are provided by Scripture to put beyond any possible doubt the fact that the God of the Bible is a single person. To speak of the Holy One of Israel as Holy Three or tripersonal does violence to language and theological truth. Worse, it is to defy the words of Jesus. Yet that is effectively what church tradition has done. And to the distraction and horror of the Jewish community to whom the Old Testament was committed, as Paul wrote. Quotation, what then is the superiority of the Jew? To them were entrusted the oracles of God. Romans 3 verse 2. These oracles present God as a unitary person, unitary monotheism, not Trinitarian monotheism, is the creed of Hebrew scripture. Jesus never attempted to alter that magnificent fact. He reiterated it and called it the great commandment, the greatest commandment. And that God of the Old Testament, that God of Israel, is also the God of the Gentiles. Paul again, quote, 
Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Romans 3, verse 29. Paul's Creed. What God did Paul claim to be serving? There's no doubt about the answer to that question. Paul is on record stating in the presence of a Roman governor, this I admit to you, that according to the way they call a sect, I am serving the God of our fathers, believing everything which is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Acts 22, verse 14, and chapter 24, verse 14. I would ask the reader whether one can honestly read this text as follows. I am serving the triune God of our fathers? I suggest that this would be to deface the text and import into it a blatantly foreign concept. Paul, like his saviour Jesus, was Unitarian to the core, believing in the God of Israel. Quote, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi 2 verse 10. Along with the thousands of singular personal pronouns denoting a single divine individual, this text cries out, against the paganization of Christianity which happened when that matchlessly simple creed of Israel and of Jesus was abandoned on the pretext that it was being, quote, modified or expanded or even enriched. But these are mere ruses to cover up the mistake. It's time for the church to retrace its steps to Jesus, the Lord Jesus whose avowed confession of God we have disregarded. May I suggest this challenge? Are you convinced that Paul's God was the non-Jewish Trinitarian God? Could he, without misleading his audience, claim to be serving the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God of Judaism, the God of his ancestors, if he believed that the true God was the triune God of later Christianity? Paul followed this claim to be a servant of the Unitarian God of Israel by stating his conviction about the future resurrection of the dead in Acts 24, verse 15. In view of this, Paul went on, quote, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and man. The triune God? Hardly. Only a very deficient sense of history would permit the impossible notion that Paul believed the God of Israel to have been the Trinitarian God. This is widely admitted. The Church and the Jewish Christian Creed. The New Bible Dictionary, in its article on the Trinity, states, The Old Testament witness is fundamentally to the oneness of God. In their daily prayer, Jews repeat the Shema, of Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. Quote, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In this they confess the God of Israel to be the transcendent creator without peer or rival. Without the titanic disclosure of the Christ event, no one would have taken the Old Testament to affirm anything but the exclusive, that's to say, unipersonal monotheism that is the hallmark of Judaism and Islam. 
Note carefully this candid admission. Reading the Hebrew Bible, on which Jesus was reared, and which he affirmed as Holy Scripture, and which Paul claimed he believed, no one could possibly have imagined God to be more than one divine person. The Hebrew Bible, says the dictionary, affirmed the unipersonal, non-Trinitarian God. Jesus echoed that affirmation precisely. But now notice how the dictionary begins to take away with one hand what it just conceded with the other. Quote, the robust monotheism of the Old Testament concedes only a few hints of plurality within the one God. The author then goes on to describe six examples of those supposed hints. Then he admits, it is unlikely that any of these was understood by the Old Testament authors or their contemporary readers to denote personal distinctions within Israel's one God. That's from the New Bible Dictionary and the article on Trinity. In other words, neither Moses nor the prophets could possibly have imagined God to be a trinity. Jews to whom, quote, the oracles of God were entrusted, never did, and to this day do not. Remember again the dictionary's admission. I quote, no one would have taken the Old Testament to affirm anything but the exclusive, that's to say, unipersonal monotheism. The dictionary is suitably tentative about the presence of the Trinity in the New Testament. The incipient Trinitarianism of the New Testament remained implicit and as yet undefined. The reader is left wondering exactly what that means. Jesus' own emphasis on the Jewish Shema should settle our question definitively. Jesus quoted the Hebrew Bible's definition of God as the most important command of all, Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. Jesus did nothing to hint to the Jewish scribe that the one God was now really composed of three persons. To do this without the slightest indication of the radical change would make the Lord Jesus guilty of dissembling. The Jewish scribe with whom he spoke was convinced by Jesus' plain affirmation of Deuteronomy 6.4 that the true God was the God of Israel, understood in the sense required by Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, on which Jesus and the scribe had perfect agreement. Jesus' public confirmation of the creed of the Hebrew Bible in conversation with a Jewish scholar establishes beyond question how Jesus Christ defined God. It defines, therefore, the Christian creed. Demonstrably, then, both Jesus and Paul who cites the same Shema in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, were Unitarian believers. And of course, Jesus constantly claimed to be Messiah and Son of God. Paul equally claimed Messiahship as the proper category for Jesus. Paul was a believer in the unitary monotheism of Israel. He loved that one God of Israel and the Fathers. Here is Paul's wonderful doxology in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the King eternal, incorruptible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen.
he was addressing the Father. I ask the reader to ponder this address to God. Is Paul here addressing a triune essence of God? Is he thinking of three persons, all of whom are equally God and yet compromise one God essence? Is Paul praising the one what of Hank Hanegraaff and James White's theology? This definition offered by the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff, and by James White in his book, The Forgotten Trinity. White says, quote, we dare not mix up the what's and who's regarding the Trinity. I'm asking the reader to ponder this address to God. Paul defines the one and only God as the eternal king. The king is not one what, but one who. What would Jesus and Paul have made of C.S. Lewis's famous quotation, we must remind ourselves that Christian theology does not believe God to be a person. That's from Lewis's Christian Reflections. When Trinitarians have finished their voluminous attempts to explain the Trinity as, quote, three who's in one what, they fail entirely to tell us of a single reference to God in the Bible as a what. This is because no writer believed in God as a triune essence. Of some 12,000 references to God in the Bible, not a single one can be shown to mean the triune God. None speaks of God as one essence. More on the Jewish Christian creed. William Mance, in the Word Biblical Commentary, is quite clear about Paul's thinking in his doxology in 1 Timothy 1.17. The only God, this is the central affirmation of Judaism, as the Shema so eloquently states. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4, compare this with Mark 12.29, 32, 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, John 5, 44, 17, 3, Romans 3, 30, and 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, Ephesians 4, verse 6, Jude 25. The Shema was repeated every day at the synagogue and is still part of the daily prayer life of the pious Jew. It was perhaps this confession more than any other that made the Judeo-Christian outlook unique in the ancient world. Paul began this paragraph by thanking Christ. He closes it by ascribing to God honor and glory. Paul had never heard of a triune God, or if he had, he would have dismissed such an idea as alien. As was Jesus, Paul was committed to the unitary monotheism of Judaism. Paul and Jesus were following the creed of Israel. They never expanded it or revised it. They repeated it. Of course, they knew also of the Son of Man, Jesus, as the one now exalted to the right hand of the one God, the Father. But this did not modify the creed of Israel defining who the one God is. The coordination of the unique man, Jesus, with God introduced the stupendous concept that there was now a glorified human being, the man, Messiah Jesus. 
as in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, elevated to a unique position next to the one God. It was God himself who had carried out this wonderful plan. It is the measure of the incomparable destiny of man in the new creation. None of the New Testament writers suggests a modification in any way of the unitary creed of their heritage. They would not have dared to imagine altering it in any way. The later second century Gentile controlled church leaders did not have such scruples. They prepared the way for later developments in the definition of God. Their successes eventually, but only after centuries of conflict, shifted the one God from one God the Father to one essence, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a new unbiblical creed. Two is not one. At the simplest level, the unwarranted promotion of Jesus to the status of the one God created confusion. Two cannot be made into one. Cardinal J. H. Newman recognized this stark fact of the universe when he said of the Trinity, and I quote, the mystery of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not merely a verbal contradiction, but an incompatibility in the human ideas conveyed. We can scarcely make a nearer approach to an exact enunciation of it than that of saying that one thing is two things. That's from John Henry Newman, Select Treatises of St. Athanasius. Can the church afford to be trading on a contradiction? Christians lay claim to the heritage of Israel and profess to be followers of Israel's Messiah. But in the matter of creed, it appears that Christianity has departed from the thinking of its founder. While the Jesus of history believed in and worshipped as God the single person Yahweh of the Hebrew creed, Christians have expanded that creed to include two other persons. And then, as if to register some embarrassment at this departure from Jesus, they maintain that despite believing in three who are all equally God, they really still believe that God is at the same time one. But that one, by being also three, is not the one God defined by the Bible and by Jesus. It's a redefinition. A tectonic shift occurred when the one God mysteriously became three in one. This happened in post-biblical times and was later set in stone by church councils which do not possess the authority of Scripture, a fact to which Christians pay at least lip service. On what basis may the church legitimately claim the Bible as its authority and at the same time abandon Jesus' definition of the one God? Erickson and the Creed Where does the Bible ever hint at a creed so complex that it provoked centuries of often acrimonious debate, ecclesiastical upheaval, hair-splitting arguments over terminology, excommunication, and even killing. History records that explaining how one can at the same time be three has exhausted the ingenuity of the most brilliant theologians. 
Evangelicals contemporary leading apologists for the view that God is three persons, Millard Erickson, candidly admits that it is surprising that the Trinity gets no direct mention in the Bible. It is claimed that the doctrine of the Trinity is a very important, crucial, and even basic doctrine. If that is indeed the case, should it not be somewhere more clearly, directly, and explicitly stated in the Bible? If this is the doctrine that especially constitutes Christianity's uniqueness, as over against Unitarian monotheism on the one hand, and polytheism on the other hand, how can it be only implied in the biblical revelation? Here is a seemingly crucial matter where the scriptures do not speak loudly and clearly. That's from Erickson's book, God in Three Persons. Erickson responds, Little direct response can be made to this charge. It is unlikely that any text of scripture can be shown to teach the doctrine of the Trinity in a clear, direct, and unmistakable fashion. Erickson goes on to rescue himself from this quandary by hoping, nevertheless, to, quote, look closely at the Bible and see if the witness to the Trinity there may not be clearer and more broadly based than may have been thought. When he discusses the logical structure of the Trinity, Erickson quotes author Stephen Davis, who feels, quote, he is dealing with a mystery. Erickson then makes the astonishing admission that Davis, quote, has perhaps been more candid than many of us who, when pressed, may have to admit that we really do not know in what way God is one and in what different way he is three. Davis did not risk saying what is obviously not true of the Bible's God, that he is one what in three whose. God is a single divine person. A straightforward reading of the Bible reveals that God is presented as a single person with all the characteristics of a person. He is not a what, but a who. Admissions that language is inadequate to spell out the Trinity clearly have not prevented the printing of oceans of words attempting to explain the Trinity. Using the non-biblical language of Greek philosophy, that the one God of the Bible is three hypostases in one essence, and that the Son of God was incredibly, quote, man, but not a man. Did you know that this is what official Christendom believes? The Bible nowhere, however, calls God an essence and never speaks of three hypostases. And any reader of the New Testament should be able to see that Jesus was a man. And if language is unable or inadequate to tell us how many God is or how three is really one, then it is the Bible which has failed to do this. Is God unable to communicate to us through the number one, the biblical language is entirely adequate as revelation about what God intends us to understand, at least in terms of his single personality. It is a matter of astonishment to us that Erickson, in his 350-page Defense of the Trinity, omits entirely any reference to Mark 12, 
verses 28 to 34, where Jesus publicly affirms the authoritative creed, that of Israel. Erickson mentions, quote, passages of distinction, like Psalm 110.1, which, quote, speak of one Lord and another Lord, thus drawing some distinction between them. Psalm 110, verse 1, Acts 2.34. But this is much too vague. The presence of two lords in no way proves that both are God. The second Lord, as we shall see, is expressly not God, that is, not given the title of deity. And if Yahweh is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6.4, it should be obvious that another cannot be Yahweh. Another can, of course, represent Yahweh or act for Yahweh, reflects Yahweh's character or carry out the will of Yahweh, and Jesus did all of those things. But if Yahweh is one person, Jesus cannot be Yahweh. Two Yahwehs do not make one Yahweh. And the Son is always described in the New Testament and by prophecy in the Old as a person distinct from his Father, who is another and different person. They enjoy, as has been said, an I-Thou relationship. And Jesus speaks of himself and his Father as we and us, and as parallel to two individual witnesses, John 8, verses 16 to 19. He also confessed his subordination to the Father. The Father is greater than I, John 14, 28. There seems to be a conspiracy in Christian literature generally to hide this very simple piece of information about Jesus' Jewish creed. Ought not the creed of Jesus Christ to be sufficient for his followers and need more be said than the creed of Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5 that, quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Messiah Jesus. Understanding that fact about the constitution of the universe, Paul has just called coming to the knowledge of the truth and being saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. I'm thankful that nevertheless for Professor Erickson's candor. He admits that the introduction of the logos or word concept in John 1.1 as meaning the pre-existing Son of God, legitimized the incorporation of philosophical speculation, specifically Neoplatonic philosophy, within the creed of the Church. John did not, of course, write, in the beginning was the Son, but in the beginning was the Word. Compare Dr. Colin Brown's very telling challenge. I quote, It's a common but patent misreading of John 1 1 to read it as if it said in the beginning was the Son. That's from his article Trinity and Incarnation in Search of Contemporary Orthodoxy, ex auditu number seven. It would be an extraordinary exegetical step to suppose that John, in one sentence, turned God into two, not least because Jesus clearly knew only of the God who alone is truly God, and he was addressing his Father in that statement. 
John 17.3, as a good Jewish unitary monotheist. Paul, however, issued a severe warning against trying to define God in terms of philosophy, Colossians 2, verse 8. It happened nevertheless. It needs to be corrected so that we can worship God in the spirit and truth taught by Jesus, basing ourselves on the very words of Jesus about who God is. A simple creed. How can one possibly miss the New Testament confirmation of the unique status of God as one person? A well-known investigation into the Trinity reports, and I quote, the Jews believed in one God whom they called the Father. For an understanding of the growth of the doctrine of the Trinity, the title Father is of special importance because in the Trinity, one of the persons is God the Father. That quotation was from the Trinity in the New Testament. Arthur Wainwright then presents the following New Testament text to show, quote, how New Testament writers expressed their belief in the unity of God and described him as Father. This last statement would appear to be a practical admission that the New Testament writers were Unitarians. What do you, as a reader, make of these statements. Jesus said, I quote, Why do you call me good? None is good except one, namely God. Mark 10, 18. The Lord our God is one Lord. Mark 12, 29. Call no man your father on earth, for one is your father who is in heaven. And the glory which comes from the only God you do not seek. John 5.44 And this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you sent, Jesus Christ. John 17.3 Paul said, I quote, If so be that God is one, we know that no idol is anything in the world, and that there is no God but one. Yet to us there is one God, the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. For God is one and will justify the circumcised on the basis of faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Romans 3.30. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Galatians 3.20. God is only one person. That translation is from the Amplified Version. One God and Father of all, Ephesians 4, verse 6. Now to the King eternal, incorruptible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1, 17. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah, Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. James and Jude. You believe that God is one. You do well. James 2.19. One is the lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. James 4.12. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time and now and forever. 
Jude 25. God is here the Father, as is true some 1317 times in the New Testament. God is explicitly distinguished from Jesus Christ. Wainwright comments on the list of texts above. I quote, The evidence shows that God was regarded as one, and the one God was believed to be the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Statements of this nature hardly seem to provide fruitful ground for the growth of a doctrine of the Trinity. He then says that, and I quote, if they are taken in connection with other statements in which the divinity of Christ is affirmed or implied, they lead immediately to the Trinitarian problem. That's from Arthur Wainwright's The Trinity in the New Testament. Wainwright is right about the Trinitarian Quote, problem. The problem does not arise, however, until the Unitarian texts above are rejected. As to statements about Jesus' quote, divinity, none of them challenges the statements about the Father being the only God. If they did challenge those Unitarian statements, they would contradict them. This in turn would lead to the conclusion that the New Testament contradicts itself in its definition of God. This I do not accept. And Jesus, the Jew and founder of our faith, as well as his chosen apostles, knew who God was. Once the New Testament Unitarian texts are accepted for what they plainly say, in harmony with the whole of the Old Testament and with Jesus in Mark 1228 28-34, the verses describing the so-called divinity of Jesus can easily be explained as descriptions of Jesus as the man-messiah in whom the one God was uniquely active through his spirit and who was exalted to the supreme position assigned to him by God the Father as predicted in Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus in the New Testament is seen as the unique agent and reflection of the one God. His so-called equality with his Father does not make him God. He is still the man-Messiah. The truth then emerges that there is indeed still, quote, one God, but he has next to him now one mediator, the man-Messiah Jesus, as 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says so lucidly and simply. Jesus, a fully human person. The crowning and amazing truth which results from this analysis is that Jesus Christ really is a human being, that is to say, a unique human being, sinless and virginally begotten and resurrected to immortality as the first of the new creation. This paradigm allows the one God to remain in his unrivaled position as, and I quote, the only one who is truly God, as Jesus said in John 17, 3, referring to his Father. And Jesus is seen to be the Son of that one God, supernaturally procreated, as Luke 1, 35 so plainly states. This paradigm, above all, allows Jesus' definition of who God is to remain undisturbed. 
the later creedal statements by church councils have in fact undermined and contradicted Jesus' own declaration of the Unitarian Creed of Israel in Mark 12.29. The biblical position is not that God was Christ, but that, quote, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. The church has sometimes enforced its own non-biblical creed with the strong arm of state law, even executing or burning to death objectors. The spirit thus demonstrated is not the spirit of Jesus. Has the church created its own problem creed and then wearied itself, trying to make sense of it, while at the same time both obscuring the simple words of Jesus and antagonizing myriads of Muslims and Jews? Would a God of love offer us an ambiguous or confusing statement about who he is? Would a God who is three not provide a single Bible verse in which the word three and God appear together? An understanding of who he is enables us to flee every form of idolatry and the menace of promoting others than he as God, as the object of religious worship. God is, Jesus said, one Lord, one, not two, not three lords. Certainly not one abstract so-called essence. He is definitely one person, since a Lord is a person, one person, so designated thousands of times, both by nouns and singular personal pronouns. He is the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus himself. It should come as something of a shock when I suggest that contemporary churches, intent no doubt on serving and obeying Jesus as Messiah, do not proclaim the creed obviously adhered to by Jesus. Consult your church statement of faith, its defining creed. In its constitution, the reason for its existence, you will find this quotation, we believe that God exists in three persons. This is certainly not the creed of Jesus. It is fundamentally different. The difference is immediately apparent to every reader. God has become mysteriously Quote, three. But for Jesus, God was strictly one, one Lord. Addressing his Father, Jesus said, You are the only one who is truly God. John 17, 3. Jesus is here speaking to the Father. He defines him as the only one who is truly God. He distinguishes himself in the same sentence from the only God, by calling himself the Messiah, commissioned by God. Yet churches maintain that there are two others who are equally the true God. Has God been denied the supreme, unequaled, unrivaled position he claims for himself over and over again in Scripture? Do we as Christians learn our creed from Jesus?
Evangelical apologist Carl Henry wrote, The triune God is indeed the ontological premise on which the historic Christian faith is founded. F.F. Bruce said a similar thing in The Origin of the Bible. But Jesus said nothing of the sort. He knew nothing of any triune God. He was no Greek philosopher concerned with questions of ontology. His premise for sound faith is belief in the unipersonal God of Israel. Such is the testimony of Scripture to the creed of Jesus. Is Jesus then not the source of the creed of the, quote, historic Christian faith? Has the one God suffered a stolen identity when more are added as candidates for the status of deity? I suggest that this patent difference between the creed of Jesus and the creed of the Church ought to be cause for concern, indeed for alarm. I say this on the basis of Jesus' intense warnings that it's perilous to disregard him as teacher and Lord. The announcement that Jesus had been born as the Lord Messiah, Luke 2.11, places him as God's appointed head of the human race and demands our loyal service of him at every level. But on no account are we at liberty to change his public affirmation of his own creed, the creed of Israel and the Bible, that God is to be understood as one single Lord and God, indeed as, quote, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 31. When commentators discuss the roots of the Christian faith, they subconsciously dismiss Jesus as the real foundation of Christian belief. When the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible arrives at Mark 12:29, it hastens to tell us that the commandments to love God and neighbor present, quote, a central doctrine of early Gentile Christianity. That is certainly true, but the commentary changes its tune suddenly when it comes to Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, as the introduction to the command to love. We are told that Jesus' affirmation of Deuteronomy 6, 4 would be satisfactory to all Jews. These are the most treasured verses of Judaism, but are they not the most precious treasure of Christians who desire to love and follow Jesus? Why not? A curious divorcing of Israel's creed from what is thought to be Christianity is evident here. But how can the Christian faith safely disconnect itself from its founder without serious damage and loss? Textbooks on the Bible are keen to provide this information Probably the earliest Christian creedal statement was the simple yet profound proclamation, Jesus is Lord, Romans 10 verse 9, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Philippians 2 verse 11. Saying Jesus is Lord was the basic creed of early Christians. The more fundamental question is, 
how did Jesus define God? In this typical statement about Jesus as Lord, the earlier creed of Jesus himself has vanished. Jesus is detached from his Jewish roots in the minds of churchgoers and then reattached to the church's creed and not permitted to maintain his own Christian creed, which is the ancient Unitarian creed of Israel, now inspect the creed of mainstream churches. There's no attempt there to reproduce the words of Jesus' creed. Rather, we are asked to submit to a very different concept of God. God is one, it is said, but, and here the switch is obvious, quote, he exists as three persons. Lip service is paid to the biblical creed, while it is immediately altered to mean something quite different. If we inquire further about this strange proposition, we are told that God is three persons but one substance or essence. Is not the difference quite obvious between God as a single person and God as one, quote, what? Jews and Muslims certainly recognize that difference instantly, and they shrink from the notion that God's oneness is an essence, so-called, composed of three persons. What Bible verse states that God is one what? Anyone who makes such a claim has been taught by post-biblical creeds, certainly not by Scripture. In Scripture, God is one person, never one what or essence. Could Jesus have affirmed that Trinitarian creed? On the contrary, the Jewish creed of Jesus defines the God of the Bible and of Israel as one Lord. One Lord is a single Lord, one person, certainly not three persons. Surely this question should engage our intense interest. It must be of great significance that we are defining God in a way which Jesus speaking of the most important of all commandments, did not. I doubt if churchgoers have given this much thought. It appears that not many sermons are given these days on the creed, on the definition of who God is. It's simply assumed that the church councils, Nicaea in 325 and Chalcedon in 451, faithfully handed down the right understanding and definition of God for us. Everyone is supposed to know that the church is based on belief in a triune God. Those councils are said to have expressed the sum of what the Bible teaches about God. But did they? Is the creed of Jesus the same creed as the creed of the councils and your church? Would it not be plain common sense to recite in church the creed which Jesus himself recited? The Articles of the Church of England wisely warned that, quote, councils may err. The belief system of Jesus himself appears to have suffered a severe blow when councils and churches adopted a strange, quote, three-in-one view of God about which Jesus knew nothing. Jews were never Trinitarians. Everyone with even a minimal grasp of the history of Israel knows that Jews never, ever believed in a three-person God. Jews were passionately and resolutely attached to the belief that God is one divine person. 
They are what theologians helpfully call Unitarians. I'm writing Unitarian here with a lowercase u to distinguish it from the modern capital Unitarian Universalist with capital letter, whose theology would be rather different from that presented here. The belief system of Jesus himself appears to have suffered a severe blow when councils and churches adopted a strange three-in-one view of God about which Jesus knew nothing. Jews were never Trinitarian. Everyone with even a minimal grasp of the history of Israel knows that Jews never ever believed in the three-person God. Jews were passionately and resolutely attached to the belief that God is one divine person. They are what theologians healthily call Unitarians, or better, Unitary monotheists. Jews, for all of their history, were never believers in a triune God. To this day, they recoil in horror at such a departure from the cardinal tenet of their revealed religion. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was an unflinching Unitarian. Jesus is also the teacher and Lord of all professing Christians. John 13, 13. An Oxford professor of theology lecturing on the Trinity makes our point. Christianity began as a Trinitarian religion with a Unitarian theology. It arose within Judaism and the monotheism of Judaism was then, as it is still, Unitarian. How was the Christian church to state a theology adequate to express the new knowledge of God which had come to it through Jesus Christ? In what terms could the Christians think of God as he was revealed to them in the practice of their religion? Were they to repudiate monotheism and assert a tritheistic theology? Or could the monotheism be revised so as to include the new revelation without ceasing to be monotheistic? That was the problem with which the church was wrestling in those early centuries in which the creeds were formulated. Last week, we were considering one aspect of that piece of Christian history, and we saw that Christian thought developed through the intercourse of its religious beliefs inherited from Judaism with the Greek tradition of philosophical thinking. I shall now try to show that the upshot of this development was a revision both of the theological idea of monotheism and the philosophical idea of unity. That's from Leonard Hodgson's Christian Faith and Practice. This statement demands careful analysis. The faith of Judaism was always Unitarian, belief in God as a single person. But the church, so argues the professor, revised its original Unitarian view of God and turned God into three persons, calling that view monotheism. Listen to the impassioned objection of Jews to the Trinitarian creed adopted by those claiming to follow the Jew Jesus. Room for the master of Nazareth within the structure of Jewish thought is only possible 
on the condition of a clear distinction between the Christ of the Christian dogma and Jesus the Jew. The Christian perception of Jesus in terms of the Holy Trinity rests upon a tragic misunderstanding. The rehabilitation of the historic Jesus at the expense of the Orthodox Son of God. It is only a vague and diluted Christian theology which imagines it possible to come to terms with Judaism. In reality, there's no understanding between the two faiths. They possess no common denominator which would form the basis for a bridge theology. Montefiore is well aware of the difficulty, as can be seen from an earlier remark where he says, the center of the teaching of the historic Jesus is God. The center of the teaching of the church is he, Jesus himself. It is this peculiar attitude to Jesus which divides forever the church from the synagogue. That's from Jacob Yotz's book, The Jewish People and Jesus Christ. The same writer underlies the Jewish view of the unity of God. I quote, The essence of Judaism is the doctrine of the absolute and unmodified unity of God. Professor Moore's masterly definition of the Jewish conception of that unity can hardly be surpassed. He calls it, quote, the numerically exclusive and uncompromisingly personal monotheism. With it, Judaism stands or falls. Indeed, the absolute unity of the God of Israel, together with the Torah, that is the revelation of this one and only God, form the heart and essence of Judaism. The rest of Jewish thought and practice is of secondary importance when compared with these two fundamental truths. This most vital tenet, as conceived by Orthodox and liberal Judaism alike, stands thus in direct opposition to the Trinitarian doctrine of the Christian Church. But who decides what creed Christians are to accept? What happened to the creed of Jesus himself, which is recorded by our Gospels as the Unitarian Creed of Israel? Late in his ministry, Jesus affirmed as the most critically important spiritual issue of all the fact that God is one and that this one God is to be loved with all of our being. Jesus, we submit, did not in any way revise the creed of his own Jewish heritage. Jesus nowhere authorized a new definition of God. The professor may speak of the, quote, wrestling of the church as they struggle to express faith in Jesus. But who said that the creed could be altered or needed to be altered and become unrecognizable as the creed of Jesus? Who said that the creed of the Bible is something to wrestle over. Neither Paul nor any New Testament writer attempted to improve on the creed of Jesus or their Jewish heritage. It was the later post-biblical church 
which through a torturous process gradually slipped away from its biblical heritage, grounded in the very words of Jesus. In 325 AD, after bitter struggles, the monotheism of Jesus was officially revised to include three persons. Revised? Can one safely alter the creed and brush aside the words of Jesus? Concessions of scholars. There are lots of very competent scholars who have shown that the language of the creeds, which churches accept, is very different from the language of the Bible. Most obviously, there's a glaring difference between Jesus' creed in Mark 12 and that of churches announcing belief in God who is three. The Encyclopedia Britannica, in its 15th edition, observes correctly, neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine as such appears in the New Testament. Nor did Jesus and his followers intend to contradict the Shema in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4 It was not until the 4th century that the distinctness of the one and three and their unity were brought together in a single orthodox doctrine of one essence and three persons. Dr. Marvin Wilson, an expert on the Hebrew roots of Christianity, comments well on Jesus' unmistakable confirmation of the Creed of Israel. Of the 5,845 verses in the Pentateuch, Hero Israel sounds the historic keynote of all Judaism. This fundamental truth and leitmotif of God's uniqueness prompts one to respond by fulfilling the fundamental obligation to love God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Accordingly, when Jesus was asked about the most important commandment, his reply did not contradict this central theme of Judaism. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Compare Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. With 613 individual statutes of the Torah from which to choose, Jesus cited the Shema, including the command to love God, but he also extended the definition of the first and great commandment to include love for one's neighbor, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Yahweh is the supreme being, wholly unlike all other things in the universe which have been created by him. That's from our father Abraham. Wilson then mentions that some scholars have seen God as a complex unity. He wisely makes no attempt to justify this attempt to read later theology back into the simple words of the Hebrew Bible. But he strangely seems unalarmed that the church he belongs to does not subscribe to the creed affirmed by Jesus himself. Dr. Wilson provides excellent historical comment on the creed recited by Jesus. He states that the Shema, quote, is one of the most crucial Old Testament texts for the foundational teachings of both Jesus and Judaism. But that foundational creed of Jesus is nowhere to be found 
on the books of mainline churches. For all of his good history and presentation of the facts, Professor Wilson seems unable to protest the church's, his own church's failure to uphold the creed of Jesus. Unless then, it can be shown that belief in three persons who are God can be reconciled with the Shema affirmed by Jesus, Christians have a defective creed. They have been mistaken for centuries. They have abandoned Jesus at a fundamental level as well as keeping many Jews and Muslims away from considering the claims of Jesus. Let us do some further comparing. We have seen what creed Jesus established as the foundation of true religion. The Lord our God is one Lord. Now let us hear what Christians were supposed to recite as creed some 500 years after the time of Jesus. From the Jew Jesus to a new Gentile creed. Below is the so-called Athanasian Creed. I will not quote it in full, but give you enough to show how it unpacks the summary statement that God exists in three persons. Whoever wants to be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic or universal faith. Which faith, unless everyone keeps it whole and undefiled, without doubt, he will perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And they are not three eternals, but one eternal. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For just as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. And in this trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped, he who wants to be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Note the heavy threats leveled at any who might question this amazing dogma. But could Jesus have possibly subscribed to that creed? Or would Jesus himself have fallen under the cruel anathemas of this so-called Christian creed. The appalling possibility is that Jesus would have fled from association with this bizarre document, which presents the ordinary reader with rather obvious nonsense. 
Jesus patently knew nothing about the creeds of Nicaea or the so-called Athanasian creed. Jesus perfectly taught and carried out the will of his Father. Jesus' own affirmation of the creed of Israel is testimony to the greatest fact of the universe, that there is a God and that he is one divine person. Could even the God of Jesus possibly believe in the Trinity? I believe that the professor of church history was precisely right when he observed, and I quote, The Old Testament is strictly monotheistic. God is a single personal being. The idea that a trinity is to be found there is utterly without foundation. There is no break between the Old Testament and the New. The monotheistic tradition is continued. Jesus was a Jew trained by Jewish parents in the Old Testament scriptures. His teaching was Jewish to the core, a new gospel indeed, but not a new theology and he accepted as his own belief the great text of Jewish monotheism, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. That's from L.L. Payne's A Critical History of the Evolution of Trinitarianism. Standard works on the Bible are quite clear about the facts. Here's an excerpt from the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament, in its entry on the word one. I quote, Early Christianity consciously adopts from Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4, the monotheistic formula, God is one. According to Mark 12.29 and 32, Jesus explicitly approves the Jewish monotheistic formula. Paul was equally Jewish in his core belief about God. I quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah, Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. That creedal statement of Paul, reflecting Jesus' view of God, should have been enough. But the church went beyond and outside the Bible. Church history witnesses to the chaos which has ensued. Hugh Anderson, in his commentary on Marx, speaks amazingly of, and I quote, the church that did not any longer recite the Shema, while, and I quote again, Jesus stands foursquare within the orbit of Jewish piety. That's from the Gospel of Mark, New Century Bible Commentary. What then happened to the church? Did it forget its founder? There was surely nothing inadequate about the Saviour's theology and his confession that his God was the God of his Jewish heritage. Why do we, as Christians, not remain within Jesus' Jewish orbit of piety? Jesus' Unitarian confession is a fixed belief from the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, handed down through the prophets of Israel to Jesus himself in Mark 12. Leading Jews of the time of Jesus echoed the same creed. Josephus was typical. To acknowledge God, he said, as one is common to all Hebrews. That's from Josephus, 
in his antiquities. And Philo, I quote, said, Let us then engrave deep in our hearts this as the first and most sacred of all commandments, to acknowledge and honour one God who is above all, and let the idea that gods are many never even reach the ears of the man whose rule of life is to seek for truth in purity and goodness. That's from Father's Decalogue. Jesus' creed is in conformity with the Jewish confession. So said Edward Schweitzer in The Good News According to Mark. Does our Lord not have the right to tell us who God is? Would it not be perilous and arrogant for us to ignore the Lord Jesus' understanding of monotheism? I return to the striking comments of a leading contemporary systematic theologian. In his classic evangelical work on the development of doctrine, Professor Harold O.J. Brown considered in 1984 that we have now entered a post-Chalcedonian era. He regrets this trend. The transformation this development portends is greater than anything that has yet happened within Christianity. It can be compared only to the transition within biblical monotheism itself from the unitary monotheism of Israel to the Trinitarianism of the Council of Chalcedon. The difference is symbolized by the transition from the prayer Shema Yisrael of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, to the confession of the Athanasian Creed, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Was the transition from the personal monotheism of Israel to the tripersonal theism of Nicaea a legitimate development of Old Testament revelation? Christians affirm that it is, holding that Nicaea represents a fuller unfolding, not a distortion of the self-disclosure of the God of Israel. Indeed, the Trinitarianism of Nicaea and the Christological definitions of Chalcedon are seen as the valid and necessary interpretation of the claims of Jesus Christ in the context of the Old Testament witness to the God who is one. That's from Harold O.J. Brown in his book, Heresies. What the professor seems not to notice is that the transition he approves was in fact a transition which moved the church away from Jesus himself. His remark is symptomatic of the giant ecclesiastical muddle which allows theologians to forget that Christianity is supposed to be based on Christ himself. Abandoning the creed of Jesus must amount to abandoning him. Brown's concession that the church has altered the creed of Jesus clashes with the plain statement of the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, and I quote, to Jesus, as to his people through many centuries, God was one. He did not modify this ancient belief 
from a dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. Very much to the point is the perceptive remark of Professor Hayes, who notes that, and I quote, interpreters of Christian persuasion have ordinarily not been especially interested in what Jesus intended and did in his own lifetime. That's from Richard Hyers, Jesus and the Future. And Professor Loofs, who warned about the Hellenizing of the faith and a, quote, camouflaged introduction of polytheism into Christianity. And that quote is from The Problem of the Beginning of Dogma in Recent Theology by Paul Schroth. And Professor Martin Werner, who deplored the paganization of the faith, Professor Martin Werner's book, The Formation of Christian Dogma. Unless it can be demonstrated from Scripture that Jesus authorized a new creed, the Church must confess to having adopted a definition of God which is not Christ's and thus not strictly Christian. A revolution is needed if we are to take Jesus seriously in the matter of defining who God and he is. The Reformation of the 16th century must be re-evaluated as very partial and in many ways inadequate. At issue is the question as to whether the Reformers really meant what they said when claiming that the Church is always reforming, semper reformanda, in order to recover its original status. Might not this question about who God is be a key to the solution of the vast problems which afflict Christendom, as well as the wider world of relations with Judaism and Islam?